Welcome to The Work of Art. I'm Ted Weinstein. The Work of Art is a series of conversations with some of the world's leading writers, musicians, photographers, artists, and others discussing their creative process and their creative lives. Our guest today is Austin Kleon. He's the author of several books, including Newspaper Blackout, a collection of visual poems made by redacting newspaper pages with a marker. His next two books were both New York Times bestsellers, Steal Like an Artist, His Manifesto for Creativity in the Digital Age, and Show Your Work, His Guide to Sharing Your Creativity and Getting Discovered. He joined us from his home in Austin, Texas. Welcome, Austin. Hi, Ted. You've definitely got a signature style and format. More than just the blackouts, you've got a very distinctive, thick marker, bold, uh, blocky style. How did that style visually come into being and evolve? So it's funny because the blackout poems really were from me looking at a couple of sites. One in the early aughts, I guess. What would this be, like 2004 or whatever? There was one site called Post Secret that's still around, uh, Frank Warren's site, where people would send postcards to him of their secrets, and then he would post them up on his site. And, you know, it's gotten big, and, and it, it was a huge site afterwards, and he did many books. But the thing that really struck me about Post Secret was, oh, you can scan artwork and put it on your blog. That's something That sounds really simple, but that's something I never thought about before. And, you know, this is pre... I don't know if Flickr was around yet, but like that whole idea of like you can make handmade art and then scan it and put it on the internet, that was a huge revelation to me because it opened up so many more possibilities because back then everyone's blog was mainly just text, you know? And so I thought, oh, well, I can do, I can start making visual pieces and I can post them on the blog. So that, so that was interesting to me. But the thing, the the real inspiration for the blackout poems was um, a website called The Smoking Gun that's still around. And what The Smoking Gun used to do is they would post these um, declassified, redacted FBI files of, like, famous people. You know, they'd have, like, John Lennon's FBI file and, you know, a bunch of lines would be redacted with, like, a thick black marker and that was really the visual genesis of the blackouts. I, I was so taken by that look of, you know, that pure black and white kind of marker, you know, look. And then um, what I realized is when you, uh, you know, I just had all these newspapers laying around that I never did anything with. I just recycled them. So I started making these silly little poems. And then, you know, I realized when you scan them into the computer and you make them, you you up the contrast, they look like those redacted government documents. So that's how those happen. But then, you know, kind of parallel to that, I was studying a lot of comics and um, I got really into woodcut novels, like the woodcut novels of like Franz Maestriel and, and Lynn Ward. And um, I'm red, green, colorblind. So color does not make a lot of sense to me. Um, but black and white does. And so I just got very interested in this kind of graphic style and I started drawing a lot. And I think it just, I have this kind of tendency to simplify, you know, that's just kind of my aesthetic. I'm just drawn to it. I'm drawn to things that are kind of stark that way graphically. And so that's kind of how the like black and white, you know, real vibrant, bold 
type thing happened. I don't think many people realize you're colorblind red-green. It's not uncommon, but not a lot of artists have it or at least talk about it. Uh, It sounds like it was a limitation that you then just turned to your advantage. I mean, it's just not natural to me. The, The color just doesn't make sense. Like my wife, you know, my wife has been influential in so many ways, but one of the ways that she's influenced me is she is naturally drawn to color. Um, she used to be a painter and she just thinks in color. And I realized that's a deficiency for me. But then I remembered, you know, back in my young days taking those tests and I was red, green, colorblind. But when you start, this is, you know, this is one of my things that I'm interested in as an artist is that so many artists, they have this kind of weird physical limitation, like a limitation in their biology that then leads to their signature work. Um, I just read an, uh, a monograph of Tybor Kalman, the, the designer. He was red, green, colorblind too. And he talks about it in his, um, you know, that color for him was a intellectual thing. He had, to, he had to say like, well, I know a sky blue would work here, but I have to get someone else to do the color, you know, to actually pick it for me. There was a video circulating on the internet the past couple of days about some specialized glasses that gave somebody who was colorblind the ability to see color for the first time and what a moving experience that was for them. I have been so interested in these videos. Um, There was another video that went around of a toddler, or not a toddler, even a baby, who she looked at her glasses through glasses for the first time and this reaction. I mean, I, I also have terrible eyesight, so I remember not being able to see the board in second grade and then finally putting glasses on, you know, that so much of my work is about seeing. I think that the things that we're lacking tend to be the things that we fixate on, you know. I mean, my mom always used to say, she was a guidance counselor, and she always used to say, you know, every counselor I ever met needed counseling. (laughs) (laughs) Every therapist needs a therapist, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly, yeah. But to get back to that idea, I'm very interested. I mean, obviously, if you look at my work, I'm very interested in the idea that your limitations are the things that make you interesting, that getting around your limitations is what makes the art interesting. And I think that's a, you know, I I rip off Saul Steinberg a lot, but that's one of the things he said is like, what makes interested, interesting art is the artist pushing against their limitations. There was a brilliant existentialist short story decades ago by Ilsa Akinger called The Bound Man. And it's about a guy who was held captive with slightly loose bindings around his uh, wrists and ankles. And within those limitations, he was a remarkable sideshow circus uh, acrobatic performer. And then late one night, if I remember the story correctly, someone clips his bindings. And all of a sudden, with total freedom of motion, he loses the ability to do what he had done before. That sounds really good. I'm surprised you haven't sent me that yet. (laughs) I mean, that, that really feels like... I mean, so much of what I'm going through in my life right now as an artist is what um, what happens when you get everything you want. What happens when those limitations that you used to have slowly you lose them? You know, because one of my limitations used to be like I had a day job always, and I always, you know, I had to make art on the side, and it was to keep me alive spiritually, and to you know, like. You know, I would get home from work and I would have dinner with my wife and then I'd go up to my office and work, you know, and try to make something. And and now that that is the work, in a sense, you know, what do you, how do you, and I have, you know, I have all the time and, and resources in the world now, like, well, what do you do then? And so I think that you have to find 
you have to make constraints for yourself. Is it that things feel less fun when they are your, quote, full-time endeavor or that without limitations, you don't have something to push against? I think it's a combination. I mean, for me, I mean, without me laying down on the couch too much here, <laughs> like, I mean, for me, I think that art was always my, um, it was where I went to, it just kind of kept me, al I mean, it's like, you know, you go to work all day and then you come home and you work on whatever you want because no one's going to look at it anyway. So you try anything and you, you know, you... You just, uh, it's, it's, it's spiritual. It was a spiritual experience for me, like making stuff and drawing and that kind of thing. And, and, and I, and no one was paying attention. That's a different uh, factor, actually. Let's talk about that a bit. You have been obviously in your book, show your work and throughout much of your public career, a real proponent that show the messiness, show the process, show everything, and that out of that, great things will come. Not everybody, though, is as, and I use this word carefully, as shameless as you, in the mm -hmm. sense that some folks are embarrassed and they need a sense of safety before they're willing to start showing their work, or they just don't have the same urge to do so. Uh, how does somebody like that develop, or rather, how did you develop? Were you always so willing to show your mistakes as well as what felt like a victory? So I struggle with this a lot because... Um, I am a natural, um, I don't take a lot of risks in my life as far as, you know, safety and just physical risks, stuff like that. The one risk I've always taken is the chance of humiliating myself. That doesn't bother me. I'm, I, I wouldn't say an exhibitionist, but I have always just felt like I was unafraid of being exposed in a, in a way. And this is something that our mutual friend Jessica Hagee and I have talked a lot about is that, you know, when you're starting out, it's like, what do you have to lose? Because it's like, if the work isn't any good and you put it out there, no one cares. No one's going to make fun of you because you're a nobody. The worst that could happen is people are going to ignore it, you know, and then if it's any good, then they'll, you know, that was always our kind of stance. For young artists who are trying to get out there, I'm always pushing that obscurity is worse than anything else. You know, just that you have to get out there. On the same, at the same point, you have to use your obscurity while you have it, and to really attempt the weirdest, coolest stuff you can think of. Because you know, I, I think it was the editors of Rolling Stone. You know, they started doing Rolling Stone, and it felt fun and freeing. And then people started reading it. And they said to each other, let's pretend like no one's reading it, you know, because it was just too much pressure. How is this affecting you? Because you are now a public figure with what is uh, horrifically called in this day and age a brand. Um, is it shaping your willingness to experiment, to move on to new formats and new types of art? For me, it's very, I'm, I'm trying desperately hard to figure out how to keep taking chances and to keep pushing forward, um, you know, not to go back to Tybor Kalman. I just have him on the brain because I just finished his monograph. But, you know, he said, like, you know, style is death. You know, once you have a style, you're dead as an artist because, you know, once you discover a style, it's like, well, that's it. You just keep playing the hits. And so you have to, you know, Milton Glaser, he's like, whenever Picasso learned something, he abandoned it. You know, you have to be willing to turn away and do something new, and, and, but also risk failure. There's an apocryphal story about Sam Francis, the painter, 
that at one point he had got to a level where all of his paintings were selling for a ton of money. And at one point he said to a friend here in the Bay Area, ah, I got to go and make another Sam Francis. And he disappeared <laughs> into his studio for uh, a week and painted a painting that then sold for half a million dollars. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's why I'm, I'm intrigued by someone like, um, you know, uh, J.K. Rowling, who, you know, published under a pseudonym or Stephen King, you know, when he, when he published under a pseudonym, that idea that can I do this on my own without anyone knowing the brand attached to it? That's interesting to me. I've had this kind of fantasy of like, you know, I'm really interested in music and I've had this fantasy of like doing an album and putting it out without my name on it just to see, you know, just like just goofy stuff like that just for fun because music's really become, you know, art used to be my solace and now art is kind of, you know, it's part business now. And so music has really turned into a thing that's pure, you know, expression. There's two aspects to that. One is the doing something new, uh, being protean and doing something new under a different name. The other is just doing it anyway and seeing if your existing fans will stick with you. I've always admired yeah. artists that are protean in their own right and then manage to have a devoted following, whether it's a thousand or 10,000 or a hundred thousand true fans who say, hey, I'm with you. Whatever you're doing is intriguing enough that uh, I may not love each iteration. Uh, an example that pops to mind is Elvis Costello, the Juliet letters. Right. Not everybody liked that experiment with classical music, but there was nobody who didn't respect his willingness to give it a shot. And that is, I mean, what you just said is what I'm attempting. What I want is I want to bring the people with me. I mean, I want to, you know, I think some... I. I think some bands in particular were very much like, we have this audience now, we don't want them, let's get rid of them. And they do something very brash and kind of like uh, confrontational and, and, you know, to kind of weed out <laughs> the audience, you know. I'm not as interested in that as I'm like, what's the next, just the next step? Like, how can we tweak it just enough that I'm moving towards where I want to go, but I'm also bringing people with me? And I think that to me is much more interesting. It's also more commercially viable, which, you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, and Elvis Costello is a great, I mean, I'm so, I'm so obsessed. I, I'm listening to Trust right now, which is a record that I've had for probably a decade that just hit me the other day, how great it is. And thinking about his career and that just that idea of like, you have this, because I think in a lot of ways, what you are offering people as an artist is your way of seeing, you know, your way that you see the world and, and this kind of voice that is just in you. And so I'm interested in like how you can take that and push it into other projects and still have that essential thing that's you, but it's different. An example is Margaret Atwood, who wrote what were clearly uh, categorized as literary novels for a long time and then moved into what can only be called genre science fiction. So that is a perfect example of like with writers, how you can play with format and genre that that is a that's like one easy trick. And that's a great Elvis Costello trick, too. Right. Like, OK, now I'm going to do my R&B Motown album. Now I'm going to do my Baroque pop album, you know, and, and, and like Cormac McCarthy, I would even say like someone like him. I mean, like, you know, The Road is like a post-apocalyptic novel, you know, No Country for Old Men. That's like a almost like a thriller or something, you know, so that so that's interesting to me because I'm like, OK, you know, I've done two what we would like creativity self-help books now. Is there another genre or a type of book that I could do? 
that I could do well that people would, you know, that would be interesting. To follow your own advice in show your work particularly, um, maybe that would mean it's time to do something different from the newspaper blackouts. Is that an idea you've been toying with, a different medium, a different style of art? Yeah, I've really been, um, I've really been thinking about um, quitting the blackouts, actually. I, um, I've been doing them for 10 years in October. How many is that total? Oh, I don't know. You know, I need to catalog. I mean, I figure I've done at least 200 a year. So, I mean, you know, 10 years, yeah, 2,000, I would say. I don't know if it would be fun to do like a retrospective or, you know, one, one thing that bothers, I don't know, it doesn't bother me as much as it's weird to me how the blackouts... I mean, they've always had a history before me. I mean, there were people that were doing stuff like that before. But the actual, like, take a black marker to a page, that's kind of become its own thing now. And there are all these people doing it that don't even really necessarily know my work. And, you know, there's even people like on Instagram that have more followers than I do, you know, that do it. And so there's just kind of this feeling that's like, okay, this is out in the world now. I don't need to do these anymore. I'll do something else. And then... So I don't know. There's something about me, though, that I need like some sort of like, I almost want to make it into, I, I don't know if it's just egotistical or what, or it's like, I just want to make it into like, I'm done, you know, some big like, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. you know. Well, if you tie a bow around it and package it up, that's great. And then what else have you been seeing in the world that you think, hmm, I want to start toying with that way? You mentioned music as a possibility. But in the visual arts or writing, because you call yourself a writer who draws, what's been so intriguing to you lately that it might be something you want to experiment with? That's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I think essentially collage really is the thing that collage is what I do when I don't know what to do next. Um, Just, you know, you grab a newspaper or a magazine and you just start like pushing things around. And I think that's always a good place for me to go and get new ideas. Um, as far as like books I'm really interested in, I do feel like books for me, I'm may I'm I'm I understand books and I love books and I feel like there are so many opportunities, especially if you get the right publisher that you can work with. There are so many opportunities still to do things with books that are interesting. Personally, I'm kind of interested in whether I can do something that's a little bit more I don't want to say literary, but can I do a book that would be more personal essays, that would be something more like, not so do this, do that, but here are some, here's some observations with some artwork, or here's like a subject I'm kind of trying to dance around. Like I just read a book by um, Dave Hickey, who is an art critic. Um, he put out this book called Air Guitar, I think in 97, so it's older. But it's just this wonderful like essay collection you know, it's just, he's just thinking about all these interesting things and he has this voice and this perspective. And I'm just thinking like, what if you could do something like this, but visually, you know, like a really beautiful, because there's so much potential with visual essays, you know, that you can, you just, you could show so many ideas and things like that. So, you know, I have a, I have a lot of work to do. There are two ways to go at that. One would be just something that's pure personal expression. The other would be something that's intended as dropping a little wisdom on the audience. I'm thinking of uh, Tim Kreider. Um, in yeah. addition, is, do you feel the urge to do more teaching since that's a role you play a lot of in the world now? Or is this intended to be a step back and just pure personal expression? I always, I feel like that's what I'm good at. You know, I feel like teaching is something that I'm, 
I think I would be a more interesting writer and a more interesting artist if I had some sort of gig somewhere. Like, I think that the way I'm built personally, I mean, I love teaching. I love being in the room talking about ideas. I love having colleagues. I love, um, I'm extremely extroverted. So the life I'm living right now is not very good for me creatively because I'm very isolated. I come out to the garage. You know, it's just not very stimulating for me. You talk about genius from Brian Eno's yeah. phrase. You're deeply involved in communities online, obviously, which is worldwide. Uh, Austin is a great artistic community, but you've got the limitations of having small kids at home. Mm-hmm. What do you see as your genius these days? I don't know. And that's what you know, is really, um, I, I feel like my seniors is purely digital. And that just has, there are just um, limitations to that. You know, my dream is to be able to just, like, have an office somewhere. And um, there was a great image, gosh, I'm going to forget the book. I think I was actually, <laughs> I'm a little embarrassed, but I think I was reading a Richard Florida book. Oh, I know what it is. Um, um, Who's Your City? is the name of the book, and it's about, you know, picking where to live. And Richard Florida was telling, uh, um, Mahali Csikszentmihalyi was telling a story about another professor who would, he would just have his office door open, and he'd just be sitting there, like, at his desk, and he would do that for, like, a week, and people would just look in, and they'd just be like, what's he doing? You know, he's just, like, sitting there at his desk with the door open, just kind of whatever. But what he was doing was he was listening to the conversations and just kind of soaking it up and, you know, saying hi to people and people would wander in. And then he would shut the door and he'd be gone for a week and he'd write some piece. You know what I mean? So he was collecting raw material. Exactly. And so for me, I'm like, you know, how can I do that? Like, how can I get a life like that where I'm, I'm in the middle of something interesting? And, you know, for me, the gathering is more when I'm on the road and I'm doing like speaking gigs and stuff like that. That's when I get to, you know, interact with people. It sounds like there's two differences here. One is just the notion of absorbing from other people and then turning it into your own work, mm-hmm. separate from the issue of physical connection versus virtual slash digital connection. Um, everyone's been predicting for a long time, we're all going to go virtual and you don't need to work together. And now all of a sudden there's this uh, renewed belief and understanding that now actually human contact uh, face-to-face is better or is at least equally important to the distant connections with folks far away using digital media. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to my friend Wendy McNaughton, who lives in your great city. Um, She's a San Francisco. You know, we'll have these phone calls where we just talk for two hours, you know, and just about everything. And talking to other artists on the phone, you know, everyone, I'm in the generation. I mean, I'm right on the beginning of millennials, right? I was born in 83. My generation is anti-phone call, you know. (laughs) And I have really fallen in love with the phone because... It's like sitting on the porch, you know? You can get more done in a five-minute phone call than three weeks of email. That's one thing, but also on a personal level, I mean, I just, like I said, I mean, I'll I'll call my artist friends, and, you know, two hours will go by. But to get back to what I was talking about with Wendy, you know, she described one of her days, and I said, my God, how many people did you talk to that day? You know, we counted it up and it was like, you know, I don't know, dozen people. I barely talk to a dozen people a week. <laughs>
But you're not counting your presence on Twitter and Tumblr right. and Instagram. Those don't feel like uh, conversations to you? They do, and it's what keeps me a lot. I mean, it's what keeps me connected. I mean, it's absolutely. I mean, you know, the other for your listeners. I mean, the other the other big piece of my life is I have a very small children. I have um, I have a four month old, and I have a two and a half year old, and that is just. Um, you know, you just don't, you just can't be out in the world like you could before. Um, and so the, the online connections are really crucial for me for that because I can have relationships with people and still be home with the family. You know, we're both friends. I mean, we're both fans of that Kenneth Koch poem, you know, you want a social life with friends where he basically says, you know, work, uh, work, love or friends pick two. Our guest today has been Austin Kleon, a self-described writer who draws. He's the author of several books, including Newspaper Blackout, a collection of visual poems made by redacting newspaper pages with a marker. His next two books were both New York Times bestsellers, Steal Like an Artist, His Manifesto for Creativity in the Digital Age, and Show Your Work, His Guide to Sharing Your Creativity and Getting Discovered. This has been part one of our conversation. We hope you'll enjoy part two. You've been listening to The Work of Art. I'm Ted Weinstein. Hope you enjoyed this conversation and will listen to many more. Our theme music is by Mental 99 and used with their kind permission. A production of Ted Weinstein Literary Management, this has been The Work of Art. <laughs>